Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. If you thought you could ease up a bit on concerns about the coronavirus pandemic, news the last few days has been like a big bucket of water straight to the face. On Friday, California reached a grim milestone, more than 200,000 confirmed coronavirus cases. For nine straight days, our state has broken records for the number of people hospitalized with coronavirus. And hospitals here in Southern California are preparing for a possible surge of new COVID patients. And yesterday, to help halt the spread of the coronavirus, Governor Gavin Newsom ordered bars in seven counties to close. Those counties are Los Angeles, Fresno, Kings, Kern, San Joaquin, Imperial, and Tulare. Last night, I randomly called bars in these places to see if they were closed. All of them went to voicemail, except a place called The Other Bar in Fresno. It was open. The man who answered the phone and identified himself as the manager questioned the authenticity of the closure order and said his bar wouldn't close until getting official word from local or state authorities. Meanwhile, the number of coronavirus cases at San Quentin Prison, north of San Francisco, continues to rise. One state lawmaker is calling it a major catastrophe. 871 people incarcerated there have tested positive for COVID-19. The California Report's Angela Corral has more. The numbers at San Quentin started increasing at the beginning of the month after a group of around 120 inmates from a prison in Chino were transferred in. Before then, no San Quentin prisoners had tested positive. Adnan Khan with advocacy group Restore Justice warned the problem is not with just one state lockup. We're calling this a San Quentin outbreak, a Marin County outbreak. But just like we can't limit it to San Quentin, we can't limit it to Marin. Um, There are people in the Bay Area that would be affected. Sacramento will be affected. Northern California, Central, South. I mean, this is and prisons are everywhere. There's 35 prisons scattered across California. There's 110 jail facilities scattered across California. Corrections officials say statewide, more than 4,600 inmates have active cases of COVID-19. Marin County Assemblyman Mark Levine says the San Quentin outbreak has created the worst prison health catastrophe in state history, and he predicts the worst is yet to come. State lawmakers plan to conduct a hearing on California's handling of coronavirus in its prison system on Wednesday. For the California Report, I'm Angela Corral. How do you plan for safely educating more than 480,000 students on 23 different campuses during a pandemic? As the fall school year approaches, that's the challenge facing the California State University System, the largest four-year university system in the country. I talked about the issue with Cal State Chancellor Timothy White. It has been the most remarkably complex planning and policy creation task of my professional life. 
And we have two North Stars here. One North Star is the health and safety, not only of our students, but of our faculty and staff and the communities where these 23 campuses are embedded. And then the second North Star is making sure that we are allowing students or creating the opportunity for as many students to make progress to degree as is humanly possible in these times. And that's the direction we're going with probably uh, 85 to 95% of our courses being done in the virtual space across the system and uh, the balance being done in person. That's the direction we're going. And Chancellor, for those courses that simply can't be taught virtually, I'm thinking of things like nursing and laboratory classes, what's going to be done to keep students and staff safe? Well, there'll be comprehensive signage. There'll be personal protective equipment issued to everybody with face coverings to both employees and students, hand sanitizers, uh, wipes for employee workplaces, um, strict disinfecting protocols consistent with the public health guidelines, uh, physical barriers to uh, person-to-person contact happens regularly. Um, layouts are being modified in labs, so instead of having 20 or 25 students, typically in a laboratory, there may be you know, eight And Chancellor, what would you say to either a current Cal State System student or one who's entering for the first time in the fall who might worry about the quality of education they'll receive during the pandemic? They might be thinking that a lot of professors just aren't going to be as good teaching virtually versus in the classroom, and those students might choose to sit this coming school year out. With respect to quality, faculty across the system are work who may be experts in biochemistry or history or uh, molecular biology or whatever their discipline might be, but who've not traditionally used technology in their course delivery. They are all participating in one, two, three week immersion sessions, learning how to take their brilliance and translate them in, into a different modality and a different pedagogy to make it an engaged, vibrant experience. So I would encourage new students and ongoing students uh, to stick with it. And I acknowledge that if they were quote, looking to get back to campus or going to campus for the first time, that's not going to happen for them. And that's, uh, I recognize, acknowledge, and respect that. But it's only going to be for 20% or 25% of their college career. And that's a price to pay, but a small price to pay uh, to make progress to degree during these times because at the end of the day, that degree, no matter what the future economy is, no matter what the future health of the nation is, a person with a college degree is going to be much better off uh, being prepared uh, economically, socially, and environmentally uh, with that degree. So my advice is lean in. <laughs> and uh, we all acknowledge the, the moment in time, but it's a temporary moment in time. And if I could be a little more personal, Chancellor, as the leader of this sprawling institution that touches hundreds of thousands of lives in the state, what kind of three o'clock in the morning thoughts are you having now? My three o'clock in the morning is, you know, are, are we making sure we're turning every stone on the safety side and are we turning every stone on, on creating access for students and for faculty? And there's, we have students who may have a, uh, an underlying disease state who, you know, it's unwise for them to go into a group setting. Uh, are we making sure that we're delivering courses for that person's progress to degree in a way that she will uh, have access to? I worry about uh, the technology aspects in some of our more rural communities where uh, there may not be a good uh, bandwidth uh, availability. 
So we worry about getting technology into the hands of our students, particularly those who come from low income or are first generation. Those are the things that, that, that keep me up uh, uh, at night. Do you think, Chancellor, that in some fundamental ways, this pandemic has already changed higher education for good? Yeah, for good, and not only for good in the sense of forever, but for good in the sense of there are some things we're learning now in the way in which we can deliver the curriculum and the learning experience that are going to be even better than the way they used to be. You know, we'll, we'll harvest those good ideas. We become more efficient on some of the business operations to lower the overhead costs. Um, students have grown up with technology in their hands, so they're very adept at, at, at using technology. But very interestingly um, is, you know, Facebook and Twitter and so many other companies are saying, hey, look, you're going to work virtually for us in the future, even when COVID is over. Um, so our students who now have to find a way to be successful in the virtual space are actually getting an experience, if you will, of how to succeed in that virtual space, that when they graduate and go into their careers, more and more of them will be in the virtual space, working remotely rather than in some office building uh, downtown. All right. Timothy White, Chancellor of the Cal State University System. I really wish you and your colleagues the best of luck and, and thanks for your time. Very happy to join you. Thank you. Monterey County's King City at the southern end of the Salinas Valley is the first California city to outfit all of its police officers with cameras on their guns. Even though the city of just over 14,000 residents has had no officer-involved shootings in recent memory. KCBX's Greta Mart reports. King City officials say the new technology is one more step towards transparency. A large concern with body cams is an officer's standard stance tends to cover the body cam. And that's a critical piece of information that a jury, quite frankly, is now demanding to see. Robert Masterson is King City's police chief. Like most large law enforcement agencies and police departments across the country, King City officers already wear body cameras. But because of where those cameras are worn, they often don't capture what needs to be recorded. This puts a camera in a point of view right where the barrel's engaged. Uh, and if we're shooting at the suspect... You're getting us shooting at the suspect. You're getting us why we're shooting at the suspect, more importantly. Masterson says he started looking at adding weapon-mounted cameras in early 2019. The cameras instantly turn on as soon as an officer's gun comes out of its holster. After testing the unit for six months, the department got the city council's nod to spend $12,000 to get one of the weapon-mounted cameras for each of King City's 18 sworn officers. The chief's view is that law enforcement needs to keep up with the latest technology. Because that is the world we're living in. People want to see things. It's not, I, I truly don't believe it's not that they don't trust most law enforcement officers. But in today's technology, if you don't have the ability or take advantage of the ability to capture things on video, the first question for most people is why not? Brian Hadeen leads the company that makes the weapon-mounted cameras. Previously, the company manufactured laser sights and other gun accessories, but then came the 2014 police shooting of Michael Brown. It was right after that that we had the idea to use our technology, which would turn on a device out of a holster, to apply that and, and use a camera. And what's interesting is that we didn't really know that there'd be so many of these controversial shootings that would keep happening over and over and over after Ferguson. All King City police officers started carrying the new weapon-mounted cameras last week. While the force is the first California police department to fully roll out the use of gun cameras, 
The Los Angeles Port Authority and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office are looking at adopting the new technology as well. For the California Report, I'm Greta Mar in King City. As we deal with the economic hardship caused by the coronavirus pandemic, what about this idea? The government giving individuals money every month and having people figure out how to spend it any way they want, no questions asked. The idea is called universal basic income or guaranteed income. And today, a coalition of U.S. mayors is kicking off a campaign in support of the idea. It's led by Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs, who started a guaranteed income pilot project in his city. Mayor Tubbs, what is guaranteed income? The idea of a guaranteed income is as old as the nation itself. Thomas Paine talked about this in the late 1700s. Dr. King called for this and before he passed. And the idea is to provide everyone with an income floor um, in the richest country in the world so that no one has the bottom fall out from underneath them and that folks are given the opportunity to invest in themselves, to go back to school, to pay for emergencies, to build a nest egg. And it's an unconditional, regular reoccurring um, payment as part of being a citizen or part of the social contract. And you've you've had this experiment around a guaranteed income there in Stockton. You've become nationally, internationally known for it. How's it gone there in your own city? So for 18 months, we've been um, piloting and giving folks $500 a month in Stockton. And what we found is that people didn't stop working. The sky didn't fall out. We didn't turn from America to a communist country. <laughs> but instead, people were able to provide for themselves. People were able to persist during this COVID-19 pandemic. And people spend money just like you and I would spend money on food, on utilities, on emergencies, on buying wedding outfits, on, on birthday gifts, on, on, on what it takes to be human. You know, this was for a long time an idea that was rejected out of hand by a lot of people. Uh, thought of as kind of fringy by a lot of people. Do you think the coronavirus pandemic creates a space for you and other supporters of a guaranteed income that makes this much more uh, of a mainstream idea now? A hundred percent. COVID-19 has exposed just how fragile our our society is to disruption, particularly disruptions that impact the economy. Um, But it's also shown with bipartisan support, Congress passed giving cash to the American people. We have bills in Congress now for kind of a COVID-19 basic income. Also, when you talk about the George Floyd civil unrest, where folks aren't just protesting police brutality, we're protesting um, poverty as violence, right? And, 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 the, and the demand for what Dr. King called for the last time the nation had mass civil unrest at, at this scale in 1967, when he wrote, where do we go from here? Chaos our community. And he talked about a basic income being part of that um, beloved community in that 21st century social safety net. And finally, what are the consequences of not doing something like this? I mean, what Charles Darwin and the theory of evolution is that you, you have to change or become extinct. And what we're seeing right now in our world, that it's just unsustainable to have so much poverty. It's unsustainable to have so much structural violence that we have to have to evolve into something different. Um, The the unrest that we're seeing in our streets in every single city in this country um, is not going to go away because we we close our eyes and we wish it away. Okay, Michael Tubbs, mayor of Stockton, thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, Happy to have this conversation anytime. And that's the California Report for Monday, June 29th. 
a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors, no sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Hint, water with a touch of true fruit flavor. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit Donate dot kqed dot org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks do you love learning about the san francisco bay area its history its people its unique blend of cultures then you should check out the bay curious book I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!